You can be seated. Good morning, River West. So good to be together. Are you glad to be here this morning? So great. Really happy to see you all. Precious Advent time. I love that moment with Gary and Tom doing the Advent. And it's the perfect opportunity just to boast about the staff here at River West, which I know you already are, are so proud of the staff. But that's just a little picture of the spiritual depth of our staff from, from the folks who maintain the building and, and keep it beautiful, impeccable, to the, the folks who balance the books, all the way down to the, the lowly guy giving the sermon on Sunday. There's just like this spiritual depth. And I know you're so proud of the River West staff, but um, it's great to be together. Yes. I hope you're excited to get into the Gospel of Luke. Will you pull out your Bible this morning, whether you're here in the sanctuary or there at home in your living room, get out your Bible. Luke 18 is where we go. And I'm gonna dive right in because we have so much to cover. Luke 18 verse one is one of the only places in the Gospel where Luke gives us the purpose of one of the parables before actually relating the parable itself. One of the only places. In fact, it only happens twice in the entire gospel where Luke says, I'm actually gonna tell you the purpose of the parable before I even tell you the parable. And the reason for that, we've learned in our study in Luke that the reason for that is because most of the time, the parables, they actually function kind of like riddles. So Jesus doesn't actually tell you the purpose of the parable. The purpose of the parable is you're supposed to figure it out. It's parables function like riddles where the, 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 the hearer or the reader, their hearts are tested to figure out, do I actually want to know what the meaning of this parable is? And so most of the time, we're not given the purpose of the parable, but for the account we're about to read right now, we look at it, Luke 18, Verse one, it says, he told them a parable, look at this, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that's the purpose of the parable we're about to read. Luke says, okay, Jesus is teaching again. He's about to tell a parable. And because this one is so critical, you got to understand what's happening here. Luke says, I'm actually going to hang the interpretive key at the door for you. I don't want it to be unclear. Here's the point. The point is that you ought always to pray. That one is pretty obvious. For, we've heard that a lot. Pray without ceasing. That's all over the Bible. But look at the second phrase. He says that you, you ought always to pray. But, but the second thing is that you won't lose heart. You won't lose heart. Now, I don't know. I, I've got a feeling that that little phrase about not losing heart, that might be a little timely in 2020. Does that sound, as we come to the end of 2020, I got a feeling people are thinking, I'd like to hear a parable about not losing heart. And actually, it's a very interesting little phrase in the Greek. It, here's what it means. It describes an inner weariness like a spiritual exhaustion that grows to the point that you actually, in a sense, you faint inwardly. Have you ever heard the phrase, the faint of heart or being faint hearted? That's what, that's what this little phrase is describing. 
Have you been there? I kind of feel like we're there. I, I look around, I look around our world, I look around our city, and I feel like people are faint-hearted. <laughs> and one of the reasons I know this is I see how people are, are going after all kinds of things, desperately hoping that maybe they'll cure their, their faintness of heart. Is it just me, or are there way more house Christmas lights up this year than ever before? And they went up the day after Halloween. I walked into a hardware store after Thanksgiving. I've never seen this before. Do you know what they had run out of at the hardwood store, at the hardware store? Extension cords. A hardware store running out of extension cords. And the employer was standing there and he was like, bro, it's the holiday decorations. I've never seen anything like it, right? So in March, we ran out of toilet paper, okay? In September, we ran out of air filters. And in November, we're out of extension cords. But let me tell you something. I don't care how many Christmas lights you hang on your house. That's not a solution for faintheartedness. I've driven past the yellow recycle containers out on the street filled with empty alcohol bottles. It's not a cure for faintheartedness. I've seen the numbers online of the of the streaming devices, the, the, the subscriptions to Netflix and Disney Plus. I've seen the numbers. I've seen how many people are binge watching Mandalorian. All right, I'm looking at my daughters right now. Okay, Baby Yoda is a cultural phenomenon, but can I tell you something? Baby Yoda is not a cure for faintheartedness. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? But let me tell you something. Jesus has a cure for faintheartedness. Look at it again. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And here's the parable. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city. And you need to know widows in this day were the most vulnerable part of the population, extremely vulnerable, a widow. So you have someone who's super powerful, a judge, and you have somebody who's powerless, a widow. And she was in that city and she kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. I like that. He's like a, he's a self-confessing wretch. He's like, I agree with how I'm being described, okay? I'm not that great of a guy. I don't fear God and I don't respect men. He admits it. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, he said, yet I will give her, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And that sounds really strong, and it actually is strong in the Greek. That's, it's a, it comes from the world of boxing. It literally means to give someone a black eye through your constant badgering. He says, okay, I'll give her justice because she just won't leave me alone. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Did you look at that last question? Look at it really closely in your Bible. Look what Jesus says. He says, 
I, and I tell you, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You know what that tells us? That tells us this parable is a continuation of the theme we talked about last Sunday, the return of the Son of Man. Isn't that, this is not a new theme. We're not onto something new. We're still talking about the end of 17, the return of Christ. And Jesus is saying, now, in order for me to land the plane on that conversation, I'm going to tell you this parable that will encourage you to keep praying and not lose heart. And Jesus says, when Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he still find faith? What Jesus is saying is that the way for you to still be a person of faith when Christ returns is to make sure that you are a follower of Jesus who keeps praying, praying for his return, and that you don't lose heart while you wait. Because it's challenging. It's difficult. Jesus knew. He knew there's going to be a big delay between my first coming and my second coming. 2,000 years and counting, we've waited. Christians throughout history have waited. And a lot of that has been marked by anguish, suffering, persecution, both personal, but also witnessing a world that's caught up in the ravages of sin and injustice. It's so painful for Christians to see injustice in our world, to see Christ dishonored, to see Christ denied his rightful place on the throne. The Christian watches that year after year after year, 2,000 years and counting. And Jesus says, it could be possible for you to be tempted to stop praying and to lose heart. And so Jesus says, let me encourage you. And he says, the way I'm gonna encourage you is through a parable. Now, we look at your Bible. Here's the question we have to ask. How does this parable encourage believers to keep praying and not lose heart? How does the parable actually do its work? Because it's actually not entirely clear. In fact, if you have in your Bible, if you look at your own Bible, you probably have a little title to that parable. And what I want you to know, if you look at your Bible, is that title is not in the original Greek. So um, my Bible has the title, The Parable of the Persistent Widow. Raise your hand if your Bible has that. Does your Bible have The Parable of the Persistent Widow? That's not in the Greek. And I actually take issue with that title. I don't think it's a very good title because here's what that title has encouraged people to think. It's encouraged them to think that if we just badger God long enough, he'll give us what we want. But that's not, the, that's not what this parable is about. The purpose of the parable is not to say, if a widow can badger a judge till he, she gets what he wants, maybe we can badger God. That's, that's not what's happening here. So how about I give you what I think would be a better title for this parable, but it's not inspired. So I think, and you can write this down or maybe you don't have to. I think that the parable should be called the parable of the judge who is absolutely nothing like God. How's that sound? The parable of the judge is absolutely nothing like God. Because here's what's happening. Jesus is not making a comparison. He's making a contrast. In verse six, when, when Jesus says, listen to what that unrighteous judge says, the tone is almost, can you believe what you just heard? So that Jesus can say, now let me make a contrast between that 
unrighteous judge and the God of heaven. And the contrast, I can summarize it with three statements, and I will have you write these down. So three statements. I'm going to put them on the screen so you can see them out there in your home. Unlike the earthly judge, unlike the merely human judge, unlike the unrighteous judge, God actually loves justice. God actually loves his people. And God actually loves the petitions, the prayers of his people. And now what I want to do for the next 10 minutes is, and this is what I always do as a pastor, I'm going to show you those. I did not make those up. Those come right from this text. I need you to see from your Bible where that comes from. Because if you believe those three sentences with all of your heart, you know what's going to happen? Your faith will increase. You won't, you'll be a person who never stops praying and you will never lose heart. Those three sentences are the cure for faintheartedness. Not baby Yoda. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Okay. Okay, so let's work through them. Number one, unlike this earthly judge, God actually loves justice. And that's why you can pray to him. Now, Jesus tells us two things about this judge that explain why he had no desire to help the widow. Look at it, verse two. Here's how Jesus describes him. He neither feared God, number one, nor respected man. And then the judge admits it. And he, he, he says, that's true. I don't fear God and I don't respect man. We'll talk about the second one, respect for man in just a minute. But let's start with this idea of not fearing God. Okay, he had no fear for God. And therefore, because he had no fear for God, he had no concern to help this widow. The only reason that he gave her justice was selfish reasons to to get her off of his back. But if he had fear for God, the, the inference is, the logic is, if he had fear for God, he would have helped her. So River West, I want you to think about something. This means, now think about this. This is really interesting. This means that fear of God would prompt a judge to care about justice. It would be fear of God that would create that. It would be fear of God that would cause a judge to care about a poor, helpless, vulnerable widow who's desperately crying out, pleading her case. This judge had no fear of God, so he didn't care. But if a judge had fear of God, he would love justice. And why? And this is the point. Because God loves justice. Amen? God loves, and I would even take that a step further. Not not just God loves justice, God is justice. There's no such thing as justice without God. God is the standard by which people would even come to a definition of justice. How would we know the difference as human beings between the, uh, the concept of justice and injustice without a God who has determined right and wrong for us. We, we wouldn't. 
There's no such thing as justice without God. No God, no justice. And that's why God loves justice. And this isn't my idea. This is all over, it's all over the Bible. Let me just read three verses from the Old Testament. I'll start with Isaiah 61, verse eight. You don't have to turn there. Just look at the screen. Here's what it says. For I, the Lord, love justice. I love justice. Couldn't be more clear. I hate robbery and wrong. How about Psalm 37, verse 27 and 28? Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Or how about Psalm 33, 5? He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And there's many more I could read for hours. Verse after verse, God loves justice. And the thing is, justice is all over this parable. So did you notice it? It, The word shows up five different times. The widow is asking for justice, verse three. She wants, she's not asking for revenge. She's not asking for vengeance. She's not saying to that judge, pay back my adversary 10 times. All she's asking for is what is rightfully hers, justice. Verse five, the, the judge gives her justice. Verse seven, God will give justice. Verse eight, he'll give justice speedily. Justice, justice, justice. That's the theme. And what that tells us is that when Jesus says, I want you to never stop praying, the kind of praying that Jesus has in mind is a prayer for justice. Isn't that interesting? While we wait, Jesus, please return. Please come back because it, If you do not come back, the world will never have true justice. We'll never have it. Jesus had said, there will come a day when you'll long for my return. Remember that last week, 17 verse 22. One of the reasons Jesus said that we would long for the return of Christ is because the Christian knows until Jesus comes back, we won't really see true, true justice. So we pray for it and we wait and we long. In our world today, I've noticed something as a pastor, as I watch the news, as I look at social media, I cannot remember a time in my life where there have been stronger calls for justice than the day and age we're living in right now. Amen? Isn't that interesting? People across the nation crying out for justice. And can I tell you something as a pastor? That's good. Longing for justice is a good thing, but can I, can I tell you one other thing about that? Did you know that the human heart that longs for justice, which every human heart longs for it, did you know that that longing presupposes the reality of a God? Even if the people crying out for justice have no interest in God, they're already proving that there is a God because their heart wants justice. Their heart wants justice. And more importantly, when you go to God in prayer and you pray, God, please, justice, did you know you're asking God for something that he already loves? (laughs) He already loves it. He's not like that judge who didn't care. God loves justice. He loves the very thing you're praying for. And so pray for it with all of your heart.
And that's number one, God loves justice. But here's number two, unlike that earthly judge, God actually loves his people. He loves you. Jesus tells us the judge had no respect for people. We look at it, verse two. He had no fear of God and no respect for people. And that little word, respect for people, respect is probably the best translation, but the the word in the Greek is so interesting. Positively, that word to respect a person, what it means is to turn your attention towards someone in a riveted way. It means you lock in on them. You see them. You notice them. You have regard for them. You actually care. The judge, he could not care less for the widow or anyone else. He had no respect. That's the negative. But positively, it it means somebody who who actually, who locks in on you. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where when you start talking, they just, they just lock in on you, okay? That can feel really amazing. I mean, it can be creepy and weird too, depending on the context. But, but for the most part, when you're talking and someone just, they just, they're, they're riveted to every word that you say, that's a beautiful thing. Amazing. And Jesus says, the judge could not care less. So he only gave her justice because he wanted wanted her to leave him alone. But then Jesus says, now, wait a minute, but that's not what God is like. God is actually just the opposite. There's a word that you read in verse seven, and we have been trained to read past this word as quickly as we can. but it's actually a word that describes how much God loves you. Will you look at your Bible and let me now read it and I'm gonna make emphasis on the word that I'm talking about. Here's what Jesus said. He said, will not God give justice to his elect? Elect. Do you know what that word means? It's really sad as a pastor because when we read that word, you know what we usually do? We argue about it. <laughs> we go, oh, election, let's argue about what that means. But, but the, in the Bible, when you read that word, do you know what you're supposed to hear? You're supposed to hear God's locked in on you. God's riveted in his attention on you. God chose you. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose you, he loved you, he poured out his grace on you. You are his son, you are his daughter, you are his elect. The last thing we're supposed to do is argue about it. We're supposed to revel in it, revel in it. In fact, here's the way Paul said it, Romans 8. This is a favorite passage for many people. Romans 8, 31 to 33 When Paul said, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isn't that amazing? And then look at this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No way. And it goes back to what Paul had just said. 
God, because you're God's elect, no one can ever take God's love from you. Because you are God's elect, Jesus died for you. Can I tell you something, sisters and brothers? There's literally no condition that a person could enjoy in this life more that's more precious than being chosen by God. Being chosen by God. Amen? To be chosen by God. And that describes you. That describes you. So when you approach God in prayer, you may not realize this, but when you're coming into God's presence, did you know you already have his favor? You're already in his favor. You don't have to beg. You don't have to badger. You're not trying to wrestle something away from God that he doesn't want to already give you. He already chose you. He already sent Christ to die for your sins. He already poured out riches upon riches of his grace on you as as his elect. That's who you are. That's who you are. And if you believe that, think how that would motivate and empower your prayer life. You couldn't wait to go there. I remember a couple years ago, Kathy and I were um, downtown at a food cart area. We were sitting eating and I was eating my meal and I looked up and I saw sort of across the food cart, this guy, he was one of the scariest looking guys I've ever seen. He was, he, you know, he clearly, he lifted a lot. You know, when your neck is as wide as your shoulders, it's like, hey, it's time to take a day off in the gym. But he had neck tattoos. He just, he just looked like a mean kind of a guy. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to make eye contact with him for very long, you know? And then I'm eating my meal and I see out of the corner of my eye, I see a little girl go running across the food court and she's running towards this guy. And I'm thinking, no, little girl, you're going to die, you know? And she goes running and she jumps in the air into his arms and screams, daddy. And he grabs her. And see what I couldn't see about the favor that she had with him. She already knew. She already knew. And here's the question and not just lip service. Do you really believe that's how God sees you? Chosen, loved, favored by God. He can't wait for you to come into his presence. Unlike that judge, God actually loves justice. God actually loves you. And thirdly, unlike that judge, God actually loves the prayers of his people. He loves it. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this deeper and make it personal for you. Because I have a feeling we say, oh, yeah, I totally, I believe that. But then if someone were to say, but do you believe that about your petitions? You'd say, well, yeah, maybe I'm annoying God. I'm not sure. Can I tell you something, sister or brother? God loves your prayers to him specifically. You're not bothering him. You're not wearing him out. He's not annoyed by you. When God sees you coming into a time of prayer, it's not like when you see a 
when you see a door-to-door solicitor coming down your driveway, do you know how you respond to that, right? You're like, close the blinds quick. I'm going to go hide in the bedroom, all right? And I bet that's what the judge was doing with the widow. I bet he would see the widow come around the corner into the courtroom, and he would like, okay, court's adjourned till tomorrow. He did not want her there anymore, but that's not how God sees you. You... You take up a, a posture of prayer. You go into your, into your room or into a private place and you begin praying and God, you know what God's doing? He's fixed on you with favor. He loves it. God's already on your side when you start praying. Did you know that God actually helps us pray? Now think about this. God, in, God invented prayer. It's his idea. He wanted us to have a channel of communication. But think about this. God, if you're a Christian, God's given you an advocate in heaven, an intercessor. Christians, we know this. Christ, our Lord, who died on a cross, rose in power, ascended. He's actually now in the heavenly throne room, and he's interceding on your behalf every time you pray. The widow had no one to speak for her. She was alone, no friend, no advocate to vouch for her on her behalf. She had to go totally alone. You never go alone. When you pray, Jesus is there. When you pray, the Holy Spirit is praying on your behalf. This is the one I love the most. She, the widow, she had to go to a court of law. When you pray, you come before a throne of grace. No more law, no more rules. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And God sees you through his son, Jesus. God loves justice. God loves you, his people. And God loves your prayers. God loves your prayers. Now, many of you may be thinking, this is great. I believe every word you've said, pastor, but pastor, you've avoided the elephant in the room. You've avoided the big question. If God loves justice, which I believe, if God loves us, which I believe, if God loves it when we pray for justice, here's the question, pastor. Why haven't we seen justice yet? Why hasn't Christ returned? I believe God loves justice. I believe he loves us. I believe he loves our prayers. So if God loves all those things, why are we still waiting? Why are we still suffering? Why is the world still broken? And the answer is right there in an odd little phrase at the end of verse seven. We read over it fast. Now I'm gonna tell you what it means. Look at it in your Bible. Here's the phrase. The phrase is... Will he delay long over them? See that? That phrase is really hard to translate. And I think it would be better translated as, will he not be patient over them? This is a phrase about God's patience. God is exercising patience. The long interval that we're in, as we wait for the return of Christ, 2,000 years and counting, that interval is all about God exercising patience. Patience about what? 
Okay, so now I'm gonna go totally nerdy and Greek on you. I'm gonna tell you a Greek word. The word patience that you see there is delay long. It is a really profound word. The Greek word is makrothumeo. And here's what it means. Makros means far distant. It means long in terms of distance. It means for something to be really far away. And thumeo is the Greek word for anger. Now think about this. The word patience, when it describes God, means that God has placed his anger really far away, really far away. And why would God do that? Because God knows that when he comes with justice, that will also mean judgment. And he wants to wait as long as he possibly can. Because he's compassionate and merciful and slow to anger. Amen? Amen? I'm going to have the worship team come and I'm going to tell you a parable. It's actually not a parable that I came up with. I, 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 I read about this parable one time. It was a parable shared by uh, an ancient rabbi, not Jesus, but a, one of the old rabbis who was surrounded by his disciples. And he, one day he said to his disciples, once there was a king who was, he cared a lot about justice, but also this king was deeply compassionate. And so here's what this king did. This king, he took his army and he placed his army miles and miles away from his kingdom, from his city. And then the rabbi stopped talking and his disciples thought about it. It was like a riddle and you didn't explain it to us. Okay, so they thought, now why would a king do that? Why would a king place their army miles and miles away You've told us the king's compassionate and you've told us the king cares about justice. And the rabbi said, it's simple. The king knew that if the people in his kingdom and his city rebelled against him and they, they engaged in all kinds of wickedness and, and sin and horrible things, and if the king finally said enough and he called on his army to sweep in and bring about justice, which would involve judgment, the king knew that it would take the army so long to get there that maybe, by God's grace, the people in his kingdom would repent before the army got there. And that sounds a lot to me, like 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. You know it. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day, right? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient, macrothumeo. That's one of the other places where the word shows up. He's He's, he's placed his anger far away. And why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He loves justice. He loves you. He loves it when you pray.
So don't lose heart. Don't become faint-hearted. Don't stop praying. Keep crying out.